Today I'm joined by Oli Pekka-Heinen, who has graduated as Master of Laws from the University of Helsinki in 1990. From 1994 to 1999, he served as the Minister of Education. In 1995, Mr. Heinen was elected to the Parliament of Finland, representing Satakunta. In the second Lipanen cabinet, he served as the Minister of Transport and Communications from 1999 to 2002. Mr. Heinen left politics in 2002 when he was appointed a manager at Ole Radio, uh, the public broadcasting company of Finland. He was responsible for the transfer from analog television to digital television in Finland. In 2012, he was appointed State Secretary of the Prime Minister, and in 2015, Mr. Heinen became State Secretary of all National Coalition Party Cabinet Ministers. In September 2016, he was appointed General Director of the Finnish National Agency for Education. Since the 1st of May 2021, Mr. Heinonen has held the role of Director General of the International Baccalaureate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for having the opportunity to, to join. Uh, my background is that I'm coming actually from a pretty small village on the western coast of Finland. Uh, lived there a uh, happy, happy childhood and kind of, I, I'm, I'm a very fortunate person in that sense that, that there's a lot of kind of support and a lot of opportunities that I've had in my life. Uh, music has been very central to me, so I've started playing the trumpet on a very early age and, and did that at some moment also kind of almost professionally, so I was thinking that I would become a musician, but then actually uh, kind of by accident uh, I decided to go to study law. I would say that kind of, or everything in my life has been more or less of an accident that, that it's not been planned. Uh, I, I never thought about going to politics. That wasn't my intention. I, I was looking for a, a lawyer profession career. But then uh, I was just asked to, to do a short period of work in, in the parliament. And then I was asked to join the Ministry of Education to be a special advisor for a, for a minister there. And then the minister became the speaker of the parliament. And two days before the new minister was supposed to be selected, I was asked that would I be interested in in that position. Uh, I, I kind of, I thought it was a joke uh, and, and wasn't really kind of thinking about it seriously, but then some people just 
pushed me and said that if you would kind of stand for the post, it's possible that you will be selected. And then I made a decision that, yes, I, I can do it for a short period of time. And then that ended me being a minister for eight years. Uh, so my my life, as I said, has been a very fortunate one and also one that I cannot say that I have not planned it, but it has really evolved. And, and I've always had the the kind of fortune of doing very interesting things. Well, that's wonderful to hear. You know, you've had quite a, a wide variety of impactful roles um, that you've been able to make a difference and a positive impact in. What really inspired you or motivated you to sort of focus on the educational field? Hmm. Well, my father was a teacher. Uh, I was born to a school. I've lived my six first years in a school building uh, and and kind of, uh, I never went to that school as a student myself, but I always kind of, I was not allowed to go to the area where the others, where the students were, but I was always kind of looking around the corner to see that what they are doing there. So there was a curiosity about, about what school is all about. Uh, I think that curiosity also in, in my, my home, uh, towards new things, towards kind of learning, uh, and, and, and kind of towards human development is something that I got from there and that has stayed kind of strong. I've always noticed and learned that that there is so much more that you can learn and then at one point in life you also notice that that it's not only about kind of new things that you learn but it's also the question that how you grow as a human being how you understand what does it mean to be a human being and then of course has come also the idea that what can I give to the world and I cannot think of a more meaningful area than work with education and do it in a global scale because most of our global most of our challenges are global by nature these days and therefore i think that also we should try to find solutions that understand that kind of global identity that is needed in order for us to tackle those challenges Absolutely. 
Um, and I think because of your grounding from such an early age in education and the impact that it had on your father being a teacher, and perhaps that sort of really uplifted you in all the diversity of the career pathways that you pursued and the impact, you know, even the uh, reading about the radio where you had this transition. So you've been making quite a significant impact in the career pathways that you sort of pursued. And I think education is really wonderful in that, that it allows us and it empowers us to really make a positive impact in the world. Now, education is evolving globally, regionally, locally. What sort of trends uh, do you sort of foresee in the educational field? Hmm. Well, I, I think there is a a kind of a challenge in front of us that how can we make the education as meaningful as possible to the students? That really the things that are taught in the school are, are such that students can see what's the connection with those areas in their life. And it's kind of uh, such a big question because that's, that's all really about the idea of supporting each student to become a lifelong learner is to have that direct connection between the learner and the world and then enabling uh, that kind of learning process to, to evolve and, and gradually by the development phase of each student to start to take responsibility of their own learning and, and development. I think one of the big challenges that we are faced with is that how can we support better the students to learn ways and skills and competencies to get along with each other. We are seeing a more and more polarized world and kind of that discussion goes always to the extremes and there is all also that uh, that type of a tendency in the discussion cultures in, in around the globe that there's a kind of a demonizing those who have a different opinion and that is a very dangerous path for the humans. We have a huge capacity. We are kind of, we have technology, we have knowledge and skills, we have art, sciences, to the extent that we have never had in the human history. And at the same time, it seems to be that we are kind of not acting to that level of wisdom at all but we're doing very silly things in the world so so i see that that's a 
that's a big challenge that the education system is faced with. Of course, then there is, and, and, and this question is also connected to the, to the challenge of, of equality and equity in education, that um, we have been successful uh, in the years before the COVID to get children to school. Of course, there are still kind of hundreds, uh, hundreds of, of, of millions of, of children who are out of school. But compared to the situation 20 years ago, we've made kind of significant process. The challenge now is that it's not enough to get the children to school, but we have to make sure that they are also all getting quality education and teaching in order to learn. So there's a learning crisis that we're faced with. And, and, and that's, that's a big, big question that what can we all do together to, to help that and make sure that, that every child, no matter where he or she is born, has the ability for, for quality education. Well, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, absolutely agree. They're very on point and very sort of um, representative of actually what we're facing, you know, whether that's local, regional, international. Yes, there is actually a learning crisis. That's the elephant in the room. And it's pockets of whether it's from the education educator's perspective, whether it's from the learner's perspective, you know, you talked about the individual learning journey, the personalization of learning, and you talked about the global challenges of the world, which of course affect our students, you know, in a world with increasing technology, young people have more access to the wider world and the issues. They have the capacity to solve those problems that the world is facing, but they also are unfortunately affected by it, whether that comes through the means of social cultural um, sort of differences and arguments or whether that's socioeconomic factors that's affecting, you know, access to education, um, as well as looking at the working culture hierarchy and, you know, leadership styles as well. So there is, uh, and I'm so glad that you've used this term learning crisis, there really is, and there's a lot of work ahead um, to sort of address that. Now, coming to your role within the IB, how does the IB itself look at the holistic um, framework of, of learning? Um, how does it implement a holistic view of education? You know, certainly when you talked about dual memories of growing up in a school, there's this pastoral element, you know, of course, there's the academic element that's really important. And then you talked about the global um, society as well. So how is the IB practically implementing um, a holistic view of education? Well, I think that, first of all, the the idea of the of the learner profile having those attributes that look at the holistic development of a person is something that that aims to that end and the thing that i'm very thrilled about is that the learner profile is something that is not kind of a written document 
but it is so strongly lived in every school. There's no matter in which part of the world I enter a classroom, you find the same elements of the learner profile valued and executed there. And I, I think that's a, a, a central piece. The second piece is, of course, the idea of the inquiry-based approach, which is kind of combines in a nice way the skills and the, the kind of information on knowledge. Because there's a lot of discussion in the field of education that whether it should be kind of knowledge that is needed or whether it's the skills that are needed. And of course, it's both that are needed and both they are interconnected to each other. You can not really uh, master the other without the other. So, so that that's an uh, other approach that we are kind of strongly uh, seeing that it's important for the holistic development. Uh, then there is the, of course, the kind of general breadth and depth that are included in the in the IB curriculum. That, that we go across the humanities and the, and the sciences and the arts that, that kind of combines uh, the, the, the breath, but then we also have the possibility to go deeper in certain areas and to, uh, to also kind of express what you have learned and also create your own views on, on those uh, areas. And, and then maybe kind of finally, I would like to mention also the, the approach of what, what the CAS has, that kind of service approach, that it's not only that what you get in school, but it's also that, that what you can do to have a better and more peaceful world. And, and, and that kind of action, no, it's not only about what you know, but it is the thing that you're willing to do using what you know that is valued in the, in the IB uh, approach uh, to teaching and learning. So I think there are kind of several ways that uh, we, we are trying to make sure that we are supporting the growth of those kind of knowledgeable, caring uh, young people. Fantastic. Um, it's really nice, you know, you've touched on all these different threads and elements, looking at the balance between the breath and the depth and the knowledge and skills, I think, which is a really important discussion to sort of take forward. There is a, there does seem to be sort of a balancing act, you know, in education um, from a holistic perspective, whether it's the pastoral element, you talked about the caste, the service element, which is so important to teach children that there are other people in the world that, you know, require um, service in, in the form of compassion, in the form of empathy from ourselves, and that sort of develops their character. One thing I particularly like about the learning profile is the, you know, the various characteristics like being um, 
reflective learner, for example, being a risk taker. And that kind of encourages you to develop as a learner and those skills, which, again, uh, have a positive uh, loop in helping to gain the knowledge as well that helps one to progress. And like you said, we are all lifelong learners. Now, taking that into uh, linking that to sort of educational leadership. So educational leadership is key to effective vision and success in schools. Do you think distributed leadership could be a way forward to involve all in the school environment? Definitely. I, I, I'm very happy that you raised that question because I think that that is such an important part of what school is as a community. Uh, and and I, I, I strongly believe that uh, a kind of a, when we're thinking about school as a community, that each member in that community, whether it's a teacher or whether it's a student, should feel included that they are, they have a voice and that they are heard and they know that they are heard in that community is kind of central and that is you you're capable of achieving that only through a a kind of a distributed leadership to, to me leadership is not a position it, it is actually a quality uh and 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 that quality uh is best reached when there is as widely leadership and responsibility taking in that community as possible so so very strongly support the idea and also see that in our education systems it's also something that it's not only an individual school but it's actually the whole system it's the question that how do we align the school and the growth, larger growth community of a child? How do we make those connections with different levels of education, different institutions, the, the, the universities, uh, and, and also the kind of educational administrations, whether it's on local, regional or national level to be close enough to each other that there is that possibility of trust to be created and again we come to the question of of kind of distributed leadership that the the, the top-down model in education it never works because because learning is an act between two people and, and and that's the most valuable kind of relationship in there and everybody else in the system should be supporting the quality of that relation absolutely um i think it's so wonderful you know what you've um stated and i think many educators would 
be very glad to hear this empowering um, statement. And like you said, there's interlinks, there's interlinks between universities and schools and the quality of educational leadership actually does directly affect the quality of teaching and learning that the student or the child experiences, you know, coming in from whether it's primary or pre-primary stage, right to the secondary phase and then off to university. And the teachers, the support staff, the, the whole inclusive mechanism of the school infrastructure, they sort of work together. And um, it's really in, incredibly important, I think, as an educator to hear this and very empowering, actually, to hear this from you as well. So thank you very much for this. Um, now, my next question is that fluidity in curriculum allows pedagogical autonomy. So with an approach where there is an element of the teacher leading the curricula or being able to modify it um, within the framework, uh, do you think that could be a perspective to empower teachers and learners? Well, that, that has been my experience during my life, that that is a central piece of empowering teachers but also making the teacher profession a kind of motivational and a profession and an area where people want to join. Uh, I often asked in Finland during the years that question from teachers that or students that want to become teachers who are studying in the universities, uh, that what, why are you teaching? What, why are you studying to become a teacher? And I always, in Finland, I got kind of two answers. The first, first thing that came out was that, well, it's not the pay. You could pay us better. And that is true in the sense that, that uh, in Finland, uh, the pay is on an OECD average level about it. So it's not kind of on the top of the, of the uh, comparisons. And, but the other answer is that I want to become a teacher because I know that in that job, I'm in charge of developing my own work. And I'm in charge what's happening with my classes. And I think that's such an important message when we know that there are so many nations who are struggling with teacher shortages, getting skilled teachers to all the schools, that that is a very strong and powerful kind of a, a way to, to increase the attractiveness of the, of the profession. But also, it's an important point when it comes to how schools and education is adapting to the changes in the world. Because if the teachers have that room and capacity to kind of take the newest research into use, straight in their classes or connect with what's happening in the world, then the learning loop for adaptation is very small and fast. 
But if everything has to go through the national level, that means that that learning loop is very long and slow. And also it's kind of vulnerable because there needs to be so much communication that there's that challenge that people understand things differently or sometimes in a wrong way. So again, I think it's a, your question uh, touches such an essential part what kind of quality education and education systems are all about. Absolutely. And I think it's just so important that you've talked about, you know, teachers, why they're going to the profession as well. And mostly just to make a difference, you know, as graduates, fresh graduates that go into the teaching professions, they do have other pathways to pursue. And I think it's that intrinsic motivation to make an impact. And, you know, it's just so wonderful to hear somebody in your position who is able to sort of see that and be an advocate and be an ally for educators and teachers globally and to sort of empower them. It's really, really uplifting. And I'm sure many teachers that will hear this interview um, would sort of support this idea as well. So thank you so much um, for your insights, for your advocacy, for your empowerment of educators, for your really thorough understanding of the educational issues, the learning crisis, the opportunities that are available, as well as sort of the personalization of learning and the learning journey. And it really shows that you know, this in-depth understanding and advocacy, which is so important in the education sector, um, especially because this is a sector that molds the future. You know, all of us have been through the educational journey as children ourselves and the future generations and the generations to come after that. It is one of the most vital sectors that can really empower individuals and make a lasting impact on the planet. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what does the future hold for yourself? Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, well, it's a, in one way, it's a very timely question for me because uh, yesterday uh, I became for the first time a grandparent. So my Dunn's family got their first child yesterday. Of course, that makes you think a lot about kind of the, the phase of, of life and, and, and the different kind of periods. And, and of course, that also that, that question that uh, what, 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 what kind of motivates your, yourself seeing a, a kind of a newborn child. And uh, I, I think it is something that on a personal level, even more increases my commitment and willingness to try to understand as well as I can and what are the challenges there are in today's world? What does it mean really to be human? And what are the best ways 
in education and enabling the growth of young people that they would have a flourishing life. Um, and th there's a lot to do there. So, so that's definitely something that I'm, I'm kind of very strongly motivated with. And of course, I also want to, because I've been in a kind of a, how would I say, powerful positions as a very young person. So the the status or or the power as such is not interested to me any interesting to me anymore. But it's more kind of the thing that what I can do to make younger people to succeed in their careers, to, for them to kind of uh, have good positions to get further with their lives. Um, that That is also something that motivates me. Maybe the third one I, I wanna mention is that uh, also with a grand, grandchild that, that you kind of become, uh, how would I say, uh, somehow, connected and happy with the notion that kind of in order that new things can grow, old things must also be let go. And 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 that's that's something that of course there is there is kind of sorrow of letting go of things, but also there is that uh, kind of satisfaction that that's the way world is, that's the way life goes, and that's the way it should go, and and kind of kind of being uh, in 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 kind of sync with that kind of an idea seems to be becoming more and more important to me.